0: episode 408. This is 2 I'm I'm a little bit hesitant to start this episode, actually, because all of my CPUs are at 100%. And not just the CPU cores on this machine, the CPU cores of this other machine over to my right that you can't see, but just trust me, it's there. 100% all of them. The reason that they are at 100% is because I'm preparing for the demonstration in this episode, in this very episode that you're listening to right now, of distcc, that is Distributed Code Compiling for C and C++. Before we start that, though, well, let's start the episode first. So, you've already heard, this is episode 408. My, te- my name is Klaatu, I'm your host, as always, and in this episode, we're getting back onto the wagon of going through every single application or rather package, well, and application, installed on Slackware Linux by default. At the recording, at the time of this recording, Slackware 15.0 is in beta, I think. I think it's in beta. Either way, it's imminent, but so far not released yet. So we're still going along the 14.2 package list. I don't anticipate there to be major differences between 15 and 14.2. I highly doubt that I'll go back through the things that I did in 14.2 to try to pick up any spare packages here and there from the, that, that got introduced in 15 that weren't there for, in 14.2. But either way, these are the packages of 14.2 for now. We'll switch over to 15 once it's out. If you're not running Slackware, that's okay. These are all open source packages. You can get them on your distribution, on your Linux distribution. Or, or if you're not even running Linux, some of them might even be available for other platforms. So you can learn stuff from this along with everybody else. Myself included. Uh, today I've got a bunch of boring packages to, uh, to to talk about, and then the really cool one, which is distcc. So, um, and when I say boring, I mean boring from my perspective, and and that's worth noting because, to be fair, my use cases are are of course different than other people's use cases. So it's always a little bit difficult to tell how exciting something is to one person or another. So let's um. Let's look here at, at the first one in my in my list for today. We're in the D for developer package set. And the first one on my list after Lisp, C Lisp, that was common Lisp. Oh no, Cmake, Cmake, I forgot I did Cmake. So the first one in the list, um, well actually, and I should I should mention a, a tip about Cmake that I learned this past week, was that there is another way to invoke Cmake build. Or, or rather the make and make install steps, you can actually do directly with CMake. I don't know how exactly that escaped my attention before. Um, it's just I've never done that before, honestly. I've never used the CMake option for making something. I've always treated it as a configuration program. So instead, I could do, for instance, what I was saying last time, you, you, you make your little build directory, you go into your build directory, you do your cmake dot dot, and that creates all a bunch of make files and cmake files in your current directory. And then to actually build the thing, what I used to do is just type in make, and then make install, maybe with a destdir, D-E-S-T-D-I-R equals, you know, slash temp slash demo application, whatever. Well, turns out that cmake can do more than that it can actually make it for you which i mean if you really think about it that makes sense it is called cmake not c configure so in order to to build your application after you've configured it you can just do cmake dash dash build and then dot because you're in the build directory so you can just tell it this is my build directory like dot for for here it's kind of like pointing right right here dot so cmake space dash dash build space dot and that builds the objects that are in the you know it executes the the appropriate make file target and builds whatever executable you've you've defined in this case this particular one is called world and it gives me back hello world so that's pretty simple and then you can do cmake dash dash install as well, and that, inst- that that invokes the install rule of your makefile. I didn't know about that. I'd never used it that way, and I'm happy to have discovered that. Okay, let's power through some stuff so we can get the distcc. Not that distcc is gonna take all that long either, to be honest, but let's, let's get through some of this stuff. So this one actually is kinda useful, but I feel like it arguably um, sort of gets into the same domain as bin-util's but then again, it's a different interface, so maybe that's that's probably worth a lot to some somebody out there is probably quite happy to have a different interface. So I'm going to go into I guess I'll go into this old flex demo directory that I have because it's got some relevant header files and .c files and things like that. So now I'm going to run c scope. That's the letter c followed by the word scope, all one string. Cscope, scope, and I think actually I'm gonna do a dash dash help real quick just to make sure. But yeah, I don't think I have to tell it anything. I just I just launch it in the in the directory that I want. Now I could I could define things, but by default C scope examines the C and Yak source files in the current directory. Yeah, so okay. C scope. Now what happens when you launch C scope is you enter the C scope interface. It's a terminal based interface, but it does it does not give you Back your prompt. You are now trapped in C scope. If you want to get out, don't panic. Control D. D is in Delta. So you you have a sort of a, a menu or or a bunch of search fields is actually what they are at the bottom of your terminal screen. And for instance, it's find this C symbol as one. Find this global definition. Find functions called by this function. Called functions called by this function. Or calling this function. Find this text string change this text str- uh, string, find this egrep pattern, find this file, find files hash including this file, find assignments to this symbol. So we could, for instance, I guess, go down to find functions calling this function and maybe type in main? Nothing. Uh, let's instead find this text. Text string and looking for main and it says that main does exist in count dot l and lex dot dot c on a couple of four different lines and it's just doing a string search so it, it finds functions and and other things like that which is fine um so that's that's useful now i can i'm i'm now trapped sort of in this uh string search menu and so I could, for instance, open up count.l, and it opens up my default editor, which is Emacs in my case. Uh, I can see where it, where int main is is in the file. I can kind of get some context, and then I'll just c- uh, close that file, and now I'm back in C scope. So there we go. That's, um, that's that task. I could then, for instance, find functions calling this. Calling this try text, uh, Let's try. Let's try standard IO. Is that a... Yes, okay. So I can do a a find files including this file and typed in stdio, and it comes up with a couple of different ones, lex.yy.c, standardio.h, and wcar.h. So as you can see, this... and, And, you know, I mean, wcar... Oops, control D. Wcar is not something that I created here in this demo file wcar is, uh, something that exists elsewhere on my system, so the fact that it's able to sort of zero in on that as something that, that is relevant to my, to the code in the current directory is kind of interesting and, um, useful, I feel. So that's, that's C-scope. I mean, that's really kind of all there is to say about it. Let me, let me see if it, um, it says, yeah, it's a pretty, pretty short little, pretty short little, um, man page other than how to navigate the interface. So in terms of the the man page itself I guess the one thing that maybe is useful to know is that cscope builds the symbol cross-reference the first time it is used on the source files for the program being browsed and it creates a cscope.out file in the current directory when it's invoked. On subsequent invocations, cscope rebuilds the cross-reference only if a source file has changed or the list of source files is different. When there's cross references rebuilt, the data for the unchanged files are copied from the old cross reference, which makes rebuilding faster than the initial build. So um, that's something to be aware of if you're actually using Cscope on a on a regular basis. Is to kind of know when it refreshes what it believes to be true about your your um, your source files. Cscope.out is the symbol cross reference file, um, and that is again that's that's created in the current directory and so that that kind of catalogs all of those symbols um, and I don't know, I, I find Cscope, for me, I can imagine it being less useful than bin utils because it does require you to know uh, uh, to have a certain knowledge of your code base. And I am not a C or C++ programmer on a regular basis. Um, more often I would be looking through C or C++ code, and then the times that I've done that, thinking, oh, I need to find this specific function or certainly a symbol is, uh, so far has been zero. So that's C-scope, and I think that's really all I have to say about it. C-scope. Go check it out if you need it. All right, next up is CVS, and, well, le- let's, let's, let's pause on CVS for a moment, and let's talk a little bit about dev86. Dev86 is a assembly, uh, an assembler, and let me see what it says about dev86 on the Slackware server. It says this is a complete 8086 assembler and loader which can make 32-bit code for the 386 plus processors. In the past it was used to compile the 16-bit boot sector and set up binaries for the kernel but modern that is 2.4 or newer kernels, using uh, use GNU-LD instead. We have talked about GNU-LD, so I don't believe I'm going to go into dev86 um, because I just don't know how important really that is, and I I would be surprised personally to find dev86 in Slackware 15. If you go to the dev86 home page listed on in the Slackware sources, which is v3.sk slash tilde lkundrak slash dev86. You get a 404. Oh wait, I see it has been moved. According to the internet, it's been moved over to, of course, GitHub. Why wouldn't you move it over to GitHub, the place that is not running on an open source stack? So github.com slash lkundrak slash dev86. It looks like the last commit was made November 2015. I'm not saying that that really means that it's like out of date. I don't know how much kind of upkeep this kind of code would actually require. Um, this is LGPL code so I guess if you're working on like MS-DOS bootloader type technology, maybe this is useful. It does seem to refer to that uh, a little bit here in the readme file, but for for general use, yeah, it, it, it appears that LD is just as usable, well, AS and LD are just as usable as this one, so I don't see the point in really me worrying too much about this one. I could be, of course, wrong, I could be underselling this drastically... But unfortunately, I don't have the I don't have the knowledge to know whether there's some kind of really important, significant, exciting feature about this that would be notable or not. And then otherwise, I would just be going back through the AS and LD uh, tutorials, which I or n- not tutorial, but overview that I did in the previous episode. So I'm just gonna just gonna refer you back to the the LD episode instead. Which um, since I'm since I'm taking this cheat this cheat out of having to talk about Dev86, I could at least tell you, I guess, that the AS and LD episodes are—you're gonna want to listen to uh, episode 400 for LD and uh, 398 for AS, uh, or maybe it was AS and LD actually uh, for 398. Either way, there's even sample code on the on the um, on the website on my on on the GNU World Order info. Scroll down to og th- or uh, episode 398, there's sample code on, on how you can actually get the thing to you, you can see you can create the assemble the assembly code and get all of your you can see the linking in in, in practice and sort of get around doing it, letting GCC do do everything for you. You can manually do the AS and the LD commands for whatever that's worth. I don't know how much it's worth, but you can. You can do that. And it would basically be similar if you were using dev86, because dev86, at least according to the GitHub repository, uh, provides an as and ld command. There's bcc, as, and ld is what it provides. The workflow is going to be basically the same. Okay, that was or or wasn't, depending on your interpretation, dev86. Now let's move on or back to CVS, and I'm moving back to CVS because I'm going to spend more time on CVS than I did on Dev86, and then after that, we'll do distcc. CVS is a relatively old um, versioning system for for software development. So CVS stands for the Concurrent Versions System, which kind of sums up everything after it, if if you kind of think about what that's saying. Concurrent versions. You could have concurrent versions of your software existing all at once. And then someone will come up after all of these versions exist and merge them into a singular singular branch or a singular trunk. And, and that's what SVN does, it's what Git does, it's what Mercurial does and Fossil and all those other things. So in many ways, um, all of these systems which I think we actually do, called Version Control Systems now. VCS, I think. Is that a thing, or am I making that up? Well, what am I talking about? It's a three-letter acronym. I'm sure sure it exists. But anyway, Version Control System. Well, CVS is the concurrent uh, versioning system, and it runs on top of the revision control system, which is RCS. And I've never encountered, like, raw RCS, but CVS I've definitely encountered once or twice. Like, NetBSD has a an active CVS repository still so it, it it's out there it is old i'm assuming that people are using it partly because they're used to it and then partly because it's probably a lot of work to port i don't know you know two decades or or a decade or 3 years of of revision control to to a new system. So if you've got everything in CVS, I feel like it's probably non-trivial to just decide, oh, we're going to start using Git now because everyone else is using Git. I, I imagine there's a lot of, there are many reasons to stay with whatever you started out on. So CVS is still out there. I don't encounter it as half as much. A, a third, just even a 16th of as much I I barely ever encounter CVS I don't believe I've ever tried to merge anything with a CVS repository so I haven't even done that I've, I've at least done that on SVN CVS not at all but it is still out there you, you can sometimes, you, I've checked stuff out from CVS, for instance. So it is a thing. And it is still, I guess, technically um, maintained. Like if you go to cvs.nongnu.org, you'll get to the concurrent versions system. And if you go to get the software and then download to the um, ftp.gnu. yeah, ftp.gnu.org/slash non-gnu/slash CVS, go into the source folder you'll find that there is a CVS or the the latest version of CVS is the one that Slackware ships with Slackware 14.2 remember and that is 1.11.23 which was it looks like it was put on this server last modified on this server in 2008 so how's that for you know dev86 i was saying the last commit was 2015 this one 2008 but that's the, latest, that's the latest edition, so I guess it must be still working as expected. Let's put it that way. Before we dive into CVS, let's um, go get a cup of coffee. I have a feeling we're going to need it. CVS is some old software with some, some old-style configuration ahead of us. So let's go get coffee, and then we'll start with CVS and end on Dist CC. It'll be fun. <laughs> ¶¶ coffee you've got CVS that means we can begin CVS is both the name of the framework or the the system and the command itself so when using CVS you are generally using the CVS command and I'm gonna make a directory in my demoed folder here called CVS demo not that that matters but that's that's where I'm going to be working out of is this dedicated directory which will uh, eventually become full of CVS repositories. I'm I'm, I'm assuming. So um, I haven't really used CVS in real life, other than to check out some stuff from NetBSD. On you know maybe maybe every year, something like that. Like it's pr- pretty rare that I encounter CVS in real life. But yeah, and and beca- and I, I say that because I want to make it clear that you know like. With Git, I'm very familiar. I'm, I'm very comfortable speaking about Git because it's what I started out on. It's what I use. It's pretty much the only versioning tool that I actually use on a daily basis. A little bit of Fossil here and there, but really, Git. Very confident about speaking about Git, how it's used in a professional environment, how it's used on my own system. CVS, I'm I'm not confident at all. Like in terms of workflow, I just don't know what the typical CVS users system would look like, and I'm, I'm doing this preamble because there is a setup step to CVS that involves setting up, creating some environment variables. And I don't exactly know what the intended process is for that step. It's a required step, but I, I don't quite understand what the intended, what, what that really would look like on someone who was using CVS on an everyday basis. How would they set up these environment variables? Because there, it's a bizarrely, it's a global, you know, it's an environment variable. So it's 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 across your, your entire user environment, you're setting this environment variable up. But what if you have two or three or eight repositories that you are interacting with? Do you then just change your environment variable every time you're interacting with, with a different repository? It just seems like a clunky system to me, but I don't know. Maybe there's, a, maybe there's a way people have to manage it uh, um, that would make that more convenient. I, I am imagining that the way that I would do it would be I would make a, a directory. I'm going to make a directory here called... Um, let's do package-source, p-k-g-s-r-c, uh, dot-c-v-s. And then I'm going to go into that package-source, cvs directory. And I'm going to create a file called cvsrc and a cvsrc file can contain all, all manner of options to control how cvs is invoked and there's a couple of common ones like cvs space dash q so you're telling it to be quiet when when executing cvs by default um that seems to be a rather common tag that gets used so i guess it's rather verbose by default so it's customary for people to use the dash q which is kind of interesting uh the checkout dash capital p command is also pretty popular p tap, cap, so unfortunately cvs does not have long options it just doesn't do that i think it has a dash dash version and a dash dash help and that's all you get everything else is a single letter so it's very difficult and there's lots of collisions too so it's very difficult to sort of differentiate one option from another because they're fairly meaningless single letter flags that change depending on what sort of subcommand you're using them with. But when doing an update or a checkout, I think, with a dash capital P command option, rather, uh, then that tells CVS to prune empty directories, which is useful, because otherwise you could imagine things getting pretty cluttered without that. So dash capital P is pretty, op- uh, pretty uh, common. And then the... When doing an update dash lowercase d is relatively common and that is because you are going to define where you want your update to get applied as part of your command. So it's a pretty common thing to to, to pair with an update, CVS update. So I've got CVS dash Q, checkout dash P, update dash d p and I could also set, for instance, in this case, I'm going to go to my package source uh, page here. I can set my CVS root, that is CVS root, all capitals. So I'm going to put in this put in this .cvsrc file. Export CVS root equals, and then I'm typing in the the string that package source gives me for when I when I want my sources. So that's anonCVS at org colon slash CVS root, close quote. So that's basically the origin. If you're a Git user, that has a specific meaning to you, and that's basically what this is. This is the origin. This is the upstream, the, the main trunk of what I want to grab when I get sources from CVS. The syntax of that export uh, of that CVS root is a non-CVS at the, the domain. So a non-CVS in this case, in this very specific case, is what NetBSD, when they let people check out the make files and stuff for their their version of, of Slack builds, essentially, or I guess you could argue very much the, the, the vice versa, um, the package source tree, they, they provide an, a non-CVS user that anyone can use to uh, check in or to to log in just to get the the files you can't make a commit with this non cvs but that's the that's the user they designate for anonymous users not all cvs servers are going to have that some cvs servers will require authentication and there are a couple of different methods of authentication there's p server which uses a password server i don't have access to anything that i know of that uses that so i won't be going over that there's also just SSH which actually by default I think probably most CVS servers are probably using these days maybe not I mean there's some CVS web stuff that I guess you don't really need authentication for but in in this case the SSH protocol is what they're using is just a passwordless uh, um, authentication you just you basically authenticate you verify their server against their SSH fingerprint and and you you have read only access to the directory that you need, um, which is CVS root. So for that to work, and that's similar to Git, really. I mean, Git, yes, they have a Git protocol. They also do speak over HTT- HTTPS. Uh, I think there are a couple of others, but a lot of people, I mean, especially if you're using any of the popular online hosts, you're probably actually using SSH or or Git through SSH. So for instance, if you're doing a Git clone of Git at gitlab.com colon uh, klatu slash my repo dot Git, well, that Git at is a user that gives you access to that host. And then, of course, GitLab and GitHub and all those other hosts have some other layer of authentication, ensuring that even though you got in through the git at user you're the the correct actual user with the correct ssh credentials to access your user's repositories so even with git which i do feel kind of is a, a complete system much more so than i feel that S, uh, that cvs is um, i even that is actually stringing together some some bits and pieces from around from from around your system so in order to use cvs over c over cvs over ssh you need to export cvs underscore rsh that stands for remote shell equals quote ssh close quote okay so i'll save that that's my .cvsrc file for this project for package source get, for for updating my package source. So now I can use a special environment variable that CVS knows about, which is home drive. H-O-M-E-D-R-I-V-E, all capitals. So if I type in home drive, this is just in a terminal in in the directory in my demo directory. Home drive equals dot. That is setting the current directory. Dot current directory to the the location of my .cvsrc file because normally the .cvsrc file lives in your home directory and i guess is meant to be like global which again to me doesn't make any sense workflow wise like what well, why would you have a singular .cvsrc file in your home directory if, if you've got eight different CVS roots? So you would never be able to keep, you you would always have to be changing your CVS root. Now, you could just leave your CVS root out of your .cvsrc file, but then, again, you have to continually update that environment variable or overwrite it on the in your command, which you know all of those things are options. I'm just saying this one makes more sense to me. Home drive equals dot, and then CVS, and then whatever command you want to do. So in this case, I'm going to check out the package source package source um, upstream, the package source tree, and so I'm going to do CVS dash z2. So that's um, turning on a little bit of compression to hopefully speed this process up. The CVS root is already set in my cvsrc file so i just need to do checkout dash r package source dash 2021 q1 and then dash capital p package source so we're going to check out recursively the um the the tree or the branch i guess it would be the tree wouldn't it be of of package source dash 2021 q1 and dump it into a folder called package source which may or may not exist i mean I can tell you it doesn't exist, but it will be created in that case. And because I've set my home drive to the current directory, before CVS executes, it reads in all of the data from the .CVSRC file from the user's home directory, which as far as it knows is this current directory. Of course that's not, I'm in a subdirectory, but I'm, I'm lying to it and setting current directory to home, and so it's looking there for its .CVSRC file. So. That's the most sensible way I could think to make this work, and I guess in real life what I would probably do is alias cvs to home drive equals dot cvs or something like that. I don't even know if that's possible. I assume it must be, um, and then that way the command would always look in the current directory for that cvsrc file. Maybe I'm overcomplicating it. Maybe in real life people just do cvs uh, checkout dash d and then the path to the server that they want to get stuff from, and that's just the process. The dash D singular D option in the context of checking out is redefining the home directory, or the rather the upstream, the CVS root directory. These single options are killing me. I, I cannot remember or make sense of what they could possibly stand for. So anyway, home dir... Um, equals dot CVS dash z2 checkout dash r package source 2021 Q1 dash capital P package source uh, has been running in the background as I've been speaking, and now if I do an ls on package source, looks like I've got the full tree just as I would have expected. I can look in all the different directories and see that there's a bunch of applications there. I can look in to those application. Directories and see that there are make files and dist infos and p lists and descriptions and all the information that you would expect from package source. So that that seems to have been quite successful. I'm happy with that. Okay, so if I were to need to update this this uh, package tree source, which you do from time to time when new quarters click over, you you want to uh, update your your tree to the the new. new release and so for that i would be able to do essentially the same thing home dir equals dot home dir equals dot and then do a cvs uh, update dash capital p package source and it would look to the cvs root as a non-cvs at org, um, and it would pull down the package source 2021-q1 data and update my package source, my local package source directory accordingly. Okay, so what's going on behind the scenes? How does this all work? Well, let's create a new directory. I'll just go back out into my top level demo folder here, and I'm going to make a directory called uh, remote CVS. That'll be our our pretend remote server. And if I go into remote CVS and do CVS, well, I guess I should. Yeah, no, CVS dash d to define my CVS root. I'll do slash home slash clat2 slash demo slash remote CVS, and then type init, I-N-I-T. Now if I do an LS on my previously empty directory, I see that there is now a folder here called CVS root, all capitals. So this directory is now a reserved location. I'm not going to mess with this. I'm going to back out away from it back in my demo directory and I could for instance make a new directory and we'll call it my CVS upstream does that make any let's just call it upstream that's easy upstream there we go now change directory into upstream I'm going to echo a string hello world into a file called hello.txt and that's probably really enough Well, I'll I'll copy a random, here's a a YAML file. I'll copy that into here. So I've got hello.txt and list.yaml. Now I'm going to use CVS to import this project, which was made before I decided to version control my files. I'm going to import it into CVS. And I can do that with CVS-D again to direct it to where my CVS root is. So that's slash home slash two slash demo slash remote CVS. And then I'm going to type in import dash M for message. And I'll say that I am importing everything. What do I want to call this? I want to call it upstream. That's what I want to call this repository. And I'll put my name back there, uh, which is clat2, and then start. So CVS dash D, the path, the, the path to the directory containing CVS root. It's important, containing. Don't point it to CVS root. Just point it to the directory that contains CVS root. Import dash m some message, and then the name of the repository that I'm creating, essentially, or that I'm importing, and then my name, and then the word start, which is the, it's a tag for, for metadata, uh, which I, I'm pretty sure it's re- re- required. Uh, so I'm going to hit return here, and it gives me back some information. Two, files were, um, two new files have been created upstream slash hello.txt and upstream slash list.yaml. No conflicts created. Okay, so if I go into, or if I look into my remote CVS directory, now there's a new directory there. There's CVS root, but there's also upstream. Well, that's interesting. Upstream now exists in my CVS root. Now if I look in that, there are familiar looking files. Uh, there's hello.txt, but there's a comma v and list.yaml, comma, v. That's familiar but not quite what I would have expected. So I'm going to not mess around with those files in cvs root and in, uh, instead I'll treat that as well my remote server uh, or in, in what I would imagine in git terms being the the bare the git bare repository. So I'm going to trash upstream uh, from my demo directory, not not from my CVS root. Again, I'm not messing around with anything in CVS root directly. So I'm just going to trash upstream, because I don't need it right now. And because I have a CVS backup of it, I can always retrieve it by doing a CVS-D slash home. And I'm, I'm doing the full path here, because CVS root requires the full path. So home, Klaatu, demo, CVS, no, remote CVS. So that's the path to the root folder. I'm not typing in CVS root. I'm just telling it to look there for its information. So CVS-D path to the folder containing CVS root. And I want to check out upstream, is what I called the repository that I want, and dash capital P, and I want to... I'll, I'll put it into my upstream, so it's going to be my local copy of my upstream. Oh, it doesn't like the dash p for checkout upstream, I guess. Okay, so dash p is ignored, and upstream is created. So it doesn't, it won't let you create. I guess I thought I thought when you were checking it out, you could put it into your own folder. I guess not. Anyway, I checked out upstream. If I do an ls of upstream, I get a folder that contains hello.txt, list.yaml and a, f- a directory called CVS. So I'm gonna assume that I'm not meant to mess around too much with the CVS directory, but there you go, There, there's that CVS, uh, CVS directory. So now I'm gonna go into my hello.txt file, and let's do a hello world. How about if we say hello gnu world order instead of wor- just world. I'll save that. And now I'll do a c... well, I have to do cvs-d again, because that's where we are in this scenario. Um, And then I'm going to do add hello.txt, I think. Yeah, no, I'm not. Hello already exists with version 1.1.1.1. Okay, just need to look up the command really quick for adding a file. I thought it was just cvs-add. cvs-add-my-file. It is. It is... Add. Oh, it's supposed to commit. CVS commit hello.txt gives me a little place to type in my message. So I'll say uh, changed world to GNU world order. Save that, and now we're done. And I, I don't, again, I don't know the workflow here. So I, I'm assuming that you would then send a diff of your changes to the owner of remote CVS and have. Them merge those changes into their into their main trunk, but I, I don't know, I don't know the the interaction between branches and how to merge those, or even if that's a if that's a paradigm that exists in CVS. And reading the info file on CVS, the CVS command, um, in 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 not infrequent documentation fashion, seems to assume that you already understand how this works, um, and is talking very much in terms that are foreign to me. I I don't understand the interaction of revisions. Uh, I don't understand what the expected workflow is. It's just not something that is described in CVS. And it does have a sample session of, of getting CVS set up and committing changes, but I don't understand how that actually... Like, they don't... So they, they I've gone through that now with you. Um, we've we've done up to the commit. But it doesn't really tell... It doesn't describe how that commit is then... Like, how do other people find those commits? I, I don't know. And I, I don't know what the expected interaction is when you've got merge conflicts and things like that. So for instance, if I go back one into the demo directory, I have upstream, so I'm going to make a new directory called... Um, another upstream, go into that directory, another upstream. I'll do cvs-d home 2 demo C, uh, remote cvs. I'll do a checkout of upstream. So now I've got upstream in my current directory. I'll go into that. I'll do a cat of hello.txt. It says hello GNU world order. So that's that's exciting. That's great. I mean, that's, that's my change. Um, but I don't understand how, how that's regulated. I mean, is, is that how it is on, in CVS? I guess it must be. Like, if you commit, then the change exists, and that's it. Um, but I, I don't understand how people work together. I don't know, it seems almost not, not gated enough, you know? There's not, there's not a a gatekeeper there to make sure that you're not, I don't know, screwing something up. But I guess in that event, you would just, you would give people, you wouldn't give people commit access. They would commit to their local copy and they wouldn't be pushing things back up to your server. Uh, but there's this other variable of this all being imaginary anyway. This is all local copies of stuff. So does it, h- how different is it when you're interacting with a server for which you have a password and permission to make commits? I don't know. So again, workflow, very, very fuzzy. But I think the commands themselves are relatively straightforward. I mean, aside from sort of minor confusion here and there, whether, you know, like you don't add a file before you commit it, you just commit it. There's no, there's no staging area as far as I can tell in CVS. So that, that's a minor difference. Um, little things like that. And then the, the repository creation process is a little bit different. And the structure of those repositories, I feel, are a little bit different. Maybe not. Maybe it's just a matter of the .git folder not being inside your project folder and being one step outside of your folder, and that's that's the only difference in a way, and that's fine. That, I don't think that's a big deal. It's probably even handier in some ways because that way you could have lots of subdirectories that are managed by that CVS root. I mean, for instance, it would make your home directory as a CVS repository easier to manage because. CVS root would just be hanging out in your in your top-level directory rather than embedded in some other directory, I guess. So, I don't know. It seems like a, a minor difference. Um, I, I don't feel like I'm eager to switch to CVS uh, just because I am very familiar with Git, so I won't be switching to CVS anytime soon. Um, but it does seem rather usable. I just I feel like I would be rather nervous about sort of... Erasing work and and managing versions of versions, you know, because I, I have no understanding of how revisions work. You can commit something to a specific revision number uh, with a dash r flag, but I I couldn't really find out how that manifested itself in daily work in your daily workflow. And I couldn't quite understand how to switch between revisions or whether that was really the intention. So there were some. Points where I I definitely fell over from just having sort of being my first time and probably last time using CVS in a in a in a way where it, trying to really track changes of data uh, it was just a lot different than Git so it was it was an interesting it was an inter- interesting exercise because I often do I often do wonder about that that initial you know that that the learning the learning process and just how how is it to learn something new without any context and I think one great way to emulate that, because you only get to do that once with, with any given topic, because after that you have context, good or bad, you have an idea of how it's supposed to work, so, and and I think a, an interesting, as it turns out, an interesting way to emulate that is to approach something that's completely different than the context you do have. So I'm I'm completely and utterly spoilt by. By my familiarity with git in terms of version control i mean to me that if probably for the rest of my life that will be the basis for which i interpret from through which every, i interpret everything else uh, every other version control experience that i have will be compared to git and it will be oh so this is like git or oh this this is not this part not like git this is different from git you know what i mean that's just how it's going to be for me because that's how i got started with version control. Um, Whereas some other people might have gotten started with CVS, or they might have gotten started with tracking changes in a word processor. That might be their closest um, analogy. So it's kind of interesting, and it was an interesting exercise for me to try to learn CVS insofar as I, you know, whatever I did learn. uh, It was an interesting process to observe myself stumbling through parts because they weren't enough like Git to really make any sense to me. Okay, so now... Let's take a look at DistCC. DistCC is something that a friend of mine, Cobra2, has been telling me to use for years. He's highly recommended DistCC. And I got to admit that um, I thought always thought it was a great idea... And I've tried to use it, and unfortunately, every time I felt like I really needed distcc right now, for whatever reason, there was an architecture difference. So let's first, I guess, let's talk about distcc, instead of me giving you the excuse of why I haven't used it, why I haven't been using it until recently. Um, So distcc is a distributed C compiler. Disk CC, according to the man page, distributes compilation of C code across several machines on a network. Disk CC should always generate the same results as a local compile. It is simple to install and use, and it is often much faster than a local compile. This is quite exciting, because what you're talking about is, like, if you have a network, home network, work network, whatever, with a bunch of computers on it, pretty typical of a network, then you could turn feasibly that network into your compiling computer. It would be sort of a render farm for code, or a supercomputer almost, for, for compiling. Now those computers need to be able to run distcc, and they also have to be well, they don't have to be. They they ought to be. It's easier if they are running the same OS and on the same chip architecture and so on. That, that does require setup if you want to work around that. You have to know a bunch of things about GCC and cross compiling, and you do have to set that up if you if you're dealing with different OSs, different different architectures. I've never done that, I'm not going to do that today. It just seems like just enough just barely enough too much trouble for me to bother with. Um I would I would probably do it if it was like literally gonna give me like a render farm for other stuff and and, and if I was doing video work on a regular basis now, which I'm I'm really not anymore. But yeah, for for code, I, I just yeah, I have never needed to compile that much faster. That it, that I've bothered setting up cross-compiling environment, so that just isn't something that I'm, I guess, I'm yet willing to do. But it's a bit of a, above and beyond for a, a quick demo. Anyway, I think DCC itself is worth setting up if if convenient. And nowadays it is convenient. I've got a small little home network, got just enough computers of the same architecture that I could use. Just a you know, just a little three-node network or a three-node. Uh, compiling network, not not anything too fancy, but but good enough. So setup. First, you need to make sure disk.cc is installed. Now, on my Slackware tower, uh, which we'll call let's call it tower or, or works well. Let's just call it uh, workstation because that's what I generally think of it as workstation. So we'll call it. Um, and it is installed Disk.cc. on my laptop here, which I'll I'll just do the the one laptop. My laptop, let's call that a laptop, and it is running currently CentOS Stream. On CentOS Stream and lots of other uh, Linux distributions, distcc is split into a couple of different packages. There's distcc, and then there's distcc-server. That's pretty common of a lot of distributions. They'll take, they'll split, things up into a client and a server. In this case, I've installed both. Technically, for this demo, I really only needed this CC server on the laptop because I'm, I'm kind of using my workstation as the main controller, but you could do both. Um, it's quite small. It's, it's, not a big, it's not a big thing, so you can install both, uh, and on Slackware, you have both anyway. So on each machine, you run distccd, as in daemon, distccd, space dash dash daemon, D A E M O N, space dash dash allow. And I think on my CentOS laptop, if I recall correctly, it actually required me to define what the allow what the allow list was by host name. So I typed in like I don't know, I think I did local host and workstation or something like that. Maybe just workstation, I don't remember. But so you launch the daemon on both machine or on on all machines that you want to sort of bring into the network and you tell it, yes, I want to allow other hosts to use this distcc node as a compiler. So that's running, idling in the background. Not a big deal. And then on each machine, after you launch the daemon, uh, you must also export an environment variable. Export distcc underscore hosts equals, quote, localhost space... uh, well, if I'm on my my workstation, then I would say localhost space laptop, and if I'm on my laptop, I would say localhost space workstation. So localhost is always, you know, the machine that you're on, but then you want to you sort of define another computer or the other computers that are in your little compiling network. And in, in this case, I'm just doing two. I'm doing my workstation and my laptop. If I had, uh, I don't know, home server as well, then it would be localhost laptop home server, and so on. So you just list all of the valid machines that you want disk.cc to go out and onto your network and find. You want to list them here. Now, that that's it's not magic. You have to, if you're doing that, you must also either have name resolution configured on your network or else list the things in your um, hosts, your slash etc slash hosts file. And that would be uh, something like, you know, 10.1.1.3 would be laptop.myhomenetwork.local space laptop. Now you should be able to just ping laptop and get get a response. So you're just doing local, you know, local file resolution. Okay, so with all that set up, really all you have to do is run make with the argument CC equals dist CC. So the example that they give in the man page is make dash J eight CC equals dist CC. But um, and while I could do that on on some test hello world type application, I decided to do it on WebKit, which if you've ever compiled WebKit, you'll know that that it takes a while to compile, like hours to compile. WebKit is, yeah, it takes a long time. So I decided to try to to compile WebKit on several machines, and I did. It did did make it manageable. I was able to compile the thing, which I've never bothered with before because it took too long. So that was exciting for me. Uh, it it I, I gave it. So what I did was I took dash j eight or not not eight but dash j is the CPU count for make. So I just took uh, six cores on my workstation, eight cores on my laptop, added that together for fourteen. So I did a j, dash j fourteen. So I just used up every bit of CPU on on both machines that I could, and ran the ran the 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 compile. Now the way that I did that was I did it with a slack build. So I just went into the make file of the slack build and told it that cc equaled distcc as as part of the the, the variables being called within the, the slack build. Um, so instead of just doing you know the make command manually, I just added that to the environment variables of the of the slack build. And when it does the configuration, you can either, you know, if you're using a a modern terminal, you can scroll up and kind of scrub through the configuration options to verify that it's invoking distcc, and it did, so that was good, and then it it started hitting all the, uh, compiling the actual code, and I went over to my laptop, and and made sure that distcc was actually being, well, that it was running and that, that there was a connection. Uh, NetStat confirms that there's a connection between the two computers involved. So you kind of get a, get a good indication that there's activity. And of course, you could look at the CPU... Uh, at CPU usage, if you have a good CPU monitor on, on either machine, you can look at that, and it'll show you that, yes, your CPUs are being topped out, so you kind of get that. I, I would love it if there was some kind of, and there might be that I just don't know, but I, I think it would be neat if there was a, if there was a command that, you know, on, on each node, you could kind of maybe look just You could type something in to just kind of verify that, yes, distcc is being used by this host, uh, you know, compiling this file or something like that. I don't know. Like a reporting mechanism, I guess. And I, there may well be something like that, but I could not find that in the man page at all. So I don't feel like it's necessarily true that, that there is some like that. Um, either way, it's a very cool system. It's really easy to use as I've just demonstrated. I mean, those 3 steps, launch, well, installing dcce, launching to CCD, and then exporting a variable to specify what the hosts what hosts are are allowed to connect to it and then starting it. Well, and possibly adding adding the hosts to your your hosts file if you don't have local name or if you don't have any name resolution on your network, you would want to do that possibly, I don't know, as many as five steps. But, I mean, that's not bad. That's really not much of an investment if it means that you could use two computers instead of one to to um, to compile code. Now, again, in real life, I do feel a little bit like that's not... It may actually not be worth the trouble if it's just... If there's a job if you're compiling things that just don't take that long, but um, sometimes it, it definitely is worth it. I mean, there are, you know, when I'm setting up a new Slackware machine, which, I mean, lately I don't do all that often, but but I used to do it pretty frequently because it was part of a job, um, and, and certainly when 15.0 comes out, I will be setting up a 15.0 machine. Uh, so at that point, I mean, I compile a lot of applications, and having... Having that enabled for, for all of that would be uh, potentially very, very handy. So, exciting prospect in terms of quicker compiling here. And uh, I suggest checking that out, CC. Hi, I hope this episode has been informative. Um, maybe I've inspired you to go learn CVS. I hope not. And hopefully I have inspired you, really, to use DisCC CC, because it is very cool, obviously. So go check those things out, and I'll talk to you next week. Of course, you can email me at klatu at member.fsf.org. That's klatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time. stop. Days and nights passed without meaning for me. I was utterly heedless of the outside world.